copy of God's Word, let's go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We'll find ourselves here a couple more times as we work our way through this theme of wonderfully made, uh, the joy of being human. Uh, And what I proposed last time I was with you was to lay out seven principles, axioms, truths about what it means to be human, with an eye particularly on some of the the struggles that we find ourselves in in our cultural moment. We'll pick up some of those struggles next time when we talk about the fact that to be human uh, is to be either male or female. Uh, But tonight, having already talked about to be human is to have a body, it's fitting that we take the other side of that. To be human is to have a soul. Uh, And there's two places in particular that we'll look at in our scripture reading, a short section from Genesis 1, and then the same passage we looked at last time from Genesis 2. But before we turn our attention to God's word, let's ask him for his help. Holy Father, we do come once again desiring to hear your word. Indeed, through Jesus by the Spirit, we desire to know you and to know better what you have made us to be and to do in this world. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes of faith, that we would see riches in this portion of your Scripture. Help us as we think about how you have made us, this original design, to wonder and to praise uh, the Maker, as we have already said, as we've already heard your call to worship, that we should come and bow down, for the Lord is our Maker. And you have made us fearfully and wonderfully. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So two places then. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then again, Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in talking about what it means to be human, last time we talked about the necessity and indeed the givenness of our bodies. Uh, There's a sense in which we don't really have bodies. We, in fact, are bodies. Humanness, our humanity, is an embodied existence. But we aren't simply bodies. We aren't merely bodies. Throughout history, materialist philosophers sought to identify all of our thinking and willing, 
all of our loving and praying as material, as bodily, as though really what makes up all of our thinking and plotting and planning is chemicals that are moving about in the brain and synapses that are firing and forming channels and urges and desires that have evolved in order to keep the species alive. And the upshot of the materialist position is twofold. First, what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter beyond ensuring that the human species continues from generation to generation. After all, that's how we evolved as thinking animals. But then second, there's really nothing beyond our bodies. There's no immortal part of us, some separateness that continues to exist after our bodies come to an end. When we die, according to the materialist position, our bodies are buried and cremated, but that's all there is. There's nothing beyond our dying. Well, that materialist position that's, that's very much current in our culture, it's, it's opposed directly by what we've read tonight. When God made the first human, God not only formed his body from the dust of the ground, but he also breathed into that first human the breath of life. And this is what the, the Westminster Confession of Faith calls our reasonable and immortal soul. You, you have to notice that that's different from the animals. In Genesis, the description that we have in Genesis 1, when, when the birds and the fishes are made, they are indirectly animated by God so that they act in accordance with their nature, with, in accordance with their making. And so the sea creatures swarm. The birds fly. But there's no breath of God in them. They simply exist. Likewise, when the livestock and the creeping things and the beasts of the earth are made, the earth brings them forth, but, but God indirectly animates them. They, they act according to how they were made. They creep and roam as animals do, but they don't have the breath of God. But with human beings, it's different. We have the divine breath in us. We have this principle of life, and when body and soul come together, we become what the ESV calls a living creature. It's this union of body and soul that makes us human. And so the body tells us that in the same way we are bodies, we are also souls. As, as human beings, we are embodied souls or ensouled bodies. The, the tight connection between our bodies and souls, that's how we were made. That's what it means to be human. But what does that really mean for us? What, what's the upshot of this? How, how does this shape the way we think about being human? Well, the first thing we can say is that every human being has a soul. Every human being, every single human being who's walked the face of the earth, every human being has a soul. It's not as though God breathed into the first human the divine breath, this principle of life, like a, like a lifeguard resuscitating a, a, a drowned swimmer and then left him on his own. No, the, the connection of our bodies and souls is sustained by the ongoing preserving work of God. Job, in his wisdom book, reflects that 
several times. And Job himself in Job 27 verse 3 said, as long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood. Of course, in Hebrew, breath and spirit are actually the same Hebrew word. And so it could just as easily be rendered, as long as my spirit is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils. This divine breath that gives the principle of life that is soul. In Job 33 verse 4, Elihu says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And again, in the next chapter, in Job 34, Elihu again says, If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. And so God's breath, this breath of life that God continues to give us, not just to Adam, not just to the first human, but to each human, sustains our our physical and our mental powers. And from that very first human to this very day, God continues to give this breath through ordinary generation. He continues to give us that which sustains us and in fact forms our souls. In Isaiah 42 verse 5, we hear, this is what God, the Lord says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Those who walk upon the earth, God gives his breath, he gives his spirit. They become body and soul together. And so God is our maker He's the one who makes our bodies, but he also unites our bodies and souls together. And he does so in the womb. Souls aren't in some kind of pre-existent soul bank that God keeps and periodically doles out when people get pregnant. Nor do souls wait for an occupied body in some kind of pre-existent state so that they might be incarnated or reincarnated in some future way. No, when we live, God forms us body and soul, and when we die, the Spirit returns to God, the one who gave it, Ecclesiastes 12 tells us. And so, our souls are immortal. Our our spirits return to the God who made them, which means that, as the children's catechism says, put it, and I can still hear Liz in her two-year-old voice saying this, our souls live forever. That's, that's what our souls are. They, they are immortal. They will survive death. They are given to us by God as he forms us in our mother's wombs, as he unites us to our bodies. For believers, we look forward to that, that day when our spirits the spirits of the righteous will be made perfect. Hebrews 12 tells us that those who've already died in Christ, they are there in Zion, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. For unbelievers, they look forward to a day when when they will face the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, as Jesus says in Matthew 10. But whether righteous or unrighteous, every single one of us has an eternal, indeed an immortal destiny. And we know this not just because the Bible tells us so, 
We can also know this because there are certain divine marks within us that tell us, in fact, our souls are immortal. As John Calvin observed, our, our, our consciences, which discern good and evil, and in fact, fear judgment, are an undoubted sign of the immortal spirit. But our souls are not just immortal, they're also reasonable. Our, our rationality, what, what Calvin calls the nimbleness of the human mind in searching out heaven and earth and the secrets of nature, our rationality also shows us that there is, there is something more than merely matter that makes us human. Our rationality points us to something else, not just brain chemicals and synapses firing, but an immortal soul that's also reasonable. And so this is true of every human being, whether white or black or brown, whether rich or middle class or poor, whether male or female, every single human being is a soul, is this unique God-given union of body and soul together. But think about what that means. Throughout history, there have been all sorts of questions that have been raised about whether women have souls, about whether black people have souls, about whether infants or those in the womb have souls. But if what the Bible tells us is true, that God makes us wonderfully, he not only knits us together in our mother's wombs, but actually gives us body and soul together, even before we're born. And all those who walk the earth have his breath in them. Then people who do evil things, who commit horrendous crimes, who sit on death row, are souls. People who sit on street corners, people who clearly struggle with mental health issues, are souls. People whose bodies experience some struggle, whether from the womb or late in life. People whose minds participate in a remarkable neurodiversity are souls. People who are hopelessly normal, whatever normal means, who get up in the morning and go to sleep at night, they have souls too. Which means we have to be really careful of any thoughts or of any language that, that dehumanizes others. It's, it's understandable for us when, when horrible crimes happen, for us to say that person is a demonic animal. No. Even that criminal who's committed a horrendous crime is a soul, is immortal which makes what he's done or what she's done all the more tragic. But we have to be careful that we don't dehumanize others because when we call people animals or monsters or when we see them as other, we, we lose sight of the fact that, that that person is as human as I am. And I am, in fact, as human as they are. We are body-soul beings. Indeed, the entire human being, body and soul together, is God's image. That's the second thing we can say. We'll, we'll come back to that theme 
that the, the, to be human is to be made in God's image. But I just want to observe at this point that bringing body and soul together and seeing us as humans, a body-soul combination, that that's what means to be human, it's the whole human being that's in God's image. It's, it's not just the soul that is God's image, nor is it just the body that is God's image. But in fact, it's body and soul together, human being, that is in fact God's image and likeness. The great Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink emphasized this point. He said, the whole human being is image and likeness in God, of God, in soul and body, in all human faculties, powers, and gifts. Nothing in humanity is excluded from God's image. It stretches as far as our humanity does and constitutes our humanness. That's really important. It's not just our souls that are God's image, our so-called nobler part. No, it's our body and soul together. It's not just male souls or male bodies or white souls or white bodies that are God's image, but every human being, male, female, black, white, brown, body and soul together, the whole human being and every human being, God's image. That, that was the point that the sanitation workers were making, you remember, back in 1968. What did their signs say? I am a man. But they could have just as easily have said, I am a human being. And they could have just as easily said, I am body and soul. And likewise, they could have said, I am God's image. Because they, they were. And we are. And the good news is that this divine image that was ruined by the fall, both body and soul, is what Jesus comes to redeem. That's my final thing tonight. Jesus redeems the whole human. He comes to redeem us body and soul. When the Son of God became man, our catechism teaches us that he took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. Why does the catechism stress that? A true body and a reasonable soul. Well, the catechism wants us to know that, that in Jesus, the eternal Son of God was truly human as well, as human as you are, because he was body and he was soul united together. And when he died on the cross, he did so in order to save our souls from the judicial wrath of God. As Peter taught in 1 Peter 2, by his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But Jesus doesn't simply save souls. Uh, we grew up, Sarah and I, in a tradition that talked about going about to save souls or being soul winners. And we understand what they meant when they said that, that it was important to evangelize and to tell others the truth of the gospel. But if we're not careful, that language of being soul winners or seeking to save souls can, can lead us to believe that souls are really what Jesus came to save and the body, not so much. But friends, Jesus doesn't simply save our souls. No, through his resurrection, he cares for our bodies as well. Our bodies too 
are united to Jesus' own body. That's why we can hope for our bodies, as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, because Christ was raised, so we shall be. We will be further clothed with life, with, with a permanent dwelling, with a spirit-driven, imperishable body, which means our entire humanity is important to God. Both body and soul together makes us human and will continue to make us human in that last day, in the resurrection day, when body and soul will be put back together again. Of course, it makes us wonder, doesn't it? What happens to us in between our dying day and our resurrection day? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we will be souls without dwelling places. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul describes it as though we would be found naked. And for Paul, it's a situation that's, that's unthinkable. But, but one thing that means, if, if Jesus cares for us both body and soul, and in fact redeems both body and soul, that means that we should not say, when we're standing beside someone's casket, a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, a daughter, a son, sister, brother, friend, we shouldn't say of that body, well, that's not really Jane. That's not really Jim. He's not here anymore. She's not here anymore. No, no, no. No, that body's Jim. And that body's Jane. And Jim's body or Jane's body is just as united to Jesus as his or her soul was. It's an interim period. But that body goes to rest in the grave, as our catechism teaches us, just as if it was lying in its bed at home. Our graves are like beds from which we will rise, and body and soul will be put back together again. In the meantime, our souls, that, that immortal, reasonable part of us, will, will be at home with the Lord. He'll care for us. We'll be in his presence he will know us. He has a place for us. But our comfort's not just that our souls go to heaven when we die. Our, our comfort is that Jesus came to care for us, both body and soul. That's why we love the first answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. What's your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we have comfort because Jesus redeems the whole human being, the whole us, the whole human, and he will care for us throughout life, and he'll care for us all the way to the end and beyond the end in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, that's why the love of God is so remarkable, that he loves all of us, every part of our individuality, the uniqueness of our body and soul together that makes you, you. That's why we'll sing about it here. But first, let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your great love for us, the way that you've cared for us, the way that in Jesus Christ you have redeemed us, both body and soul. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we do desire to know you, to know you with our entire being, 
to offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices and to worship you with our, our whole mind, heart, soul, and strength. Lord, take all of us, our whole selves, we offer ourselves to you swiftly, sincerely, promptly, and receive us as those who belong to you, whom you have purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Lord, may we leave tonight considering a little bit more the wonder of what it means to be human, but also the wonder of your great love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.